Well, we've been journeying through the book of First Peter together. And believe it or not, we only have two more sermons uh, left in this book. And I just wanted to just forecast a little bit about where we're going. So we have two more sermons in First Peter. And then you might remember we, were, we started a Genesis series back in January. We took a break. We got through all of 11 chapters in like five months or something. And uh, we got through all of 11 chapters in five months. And then we're gonna, um, then we did our first Peter series, but we're gonna pick Genesis back up in, I guess, three weeks from today. And don't worry, we're gonna do all of the remaining chapters, 12 through 50 by Advent. We can do it. And then, um, then we're gonna start a series in the gospel of Luke that I'm really, really excited about. I love Luke's gospel. And it's gonna take us from Advent all the way through 2023 um, with some breaks built in there. So I'm excited um, to open up God's word together in these several books. I hope you are too. Has anyone ever told you a story that you are asking, where is this going? And when does this end? Maybe that's how you feel every Sunday when I get up here. I don't know. Or, or maybe you're like, I feel like they're repeating themselves a lot. Like, get to the point. Or maybe like you've bought a used car. And my favorite thing is when they like pull out the, well, let me explain to you the various charges. Or if you've rented a car, they're the worst, right? Where they're like, well... Well, this, the car is actually going to cost $80, but we have the, the airport um, relocation fee. Well, what is that? I'm bringing it back. Well, we're going to charge you 15% for that. And you're like, okay, 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 get to the bottom line. How much is this rental vehicle going to cost me? Or if you're sitting in the finance office at the, at the car dealership, just tell me how much it costs. Get to the point. Well, today... Peter is going to kind of get to the point, as it were. He's going to kind of boil it all down. As, as it relates to suffering, he's going to boil it all down, and he's going to kind of say, okay, here's how to suffer well in this world. So we're going to see that we suffer well by trusting God and doing good. We suffer well by trusting God and doing good. So as is our habit, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter four, or take out your phone or whatever you use, scrolls, whatever you might have. Turn to 1 Peter chapter four. Listen, it's really hot. Uh, it, so hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 12. Peter's writes, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. 
For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those of you who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Peter gives us three general points to help us suffer well and do good, to help us trust God and do good. And the first is to rejoice in suffering. Maybe you heard that the word suffering come out of my mouth and you're like, suffering again? This is like the third week in a row. I felt that way when I opened the Bible. I was like, we're gonna talk about suffering. Come on, Peter, give me something else. But here's a little... Bible reading tip for you. That if the Bible is repeating something over and over and over again, we should probably pay attention to it. If the Bible is repeating something over and over and over again, we should probably stop and figure out what it's trying to convey and probably take it seriously. It's probably trying to get our attention. I recently learned about encaustic painting. Oh, an art lesson in a sermon. This is gonna be great. But encaustic painting is, is pretty fascinating to me. Um, I don't do encaustic painting. I don't do art. Um, but anyways, encaustic painting is when an artist has a medium like hot wax, and this is the best of my understanding, I am by no means the person you go to the art museum with. Um, they take hot wax with different colored pigments in it, and they layer, over time, different colored wax over one another to form a painting. These are two examples of encaustic paintings, just layers of wax in different colors, shaping it into something beautiful. And I think what we have in Peter is an encaustic painting, as it were. That, that Peter, over the past two chapters, really over the whole entire book, has been layering, teaching after teaching, on suffering. Different colors, different shades. And he's going to bring forth some beauty that really helps us in life. Right here in the text, he he drips some wax right at the beginning. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. We went over this a bit last week. Peter just comes out and says it again, another layer of wax. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Peter doesn't make light of the suffering that you might experience in this world. He doesn't make light of the fact that you go through hard trials. After all, he calls them a fiery ordeal. I think some of us have probably been through our fair share of fiery ordeals. Peter says, it's what it feels like, like the heat's been turned up. But what he's saying is that this this turn up of the temperature, as it were, this fiery ordeal that you're going through is going to show you who you are. He's using it to test you, to prove 
that you actually belong to Jesus, right? That's what we've kind of learned over the couple weeks. Charles Spurgeon, who's this famous pastor in England who lived in the 1800s, says, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're in. Don't be surprised that it's hard, that it's difficult, that you suffer. But know that in this, God is digging up the soil, as it were, in showing what you're really made of. He goes on, and then he gives us, says, don't be surprised, but now he says, instead, in verse 13, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Peter's made himself abundantly clear over the past couple of chapters, I think, kind of over and over and over again. Don't be surprised. Trials are gonna come. You're gonna go through fiery ordeals. And, and now he's saying that when you do, when you get there, and here's the thing, Christian, you might not be there now, but you will get there someday. When you get there, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. That's the way forward. This is the way. Star Wars fans, this is the way. Rejoicing. Right? We hold on in the middle of our trials by rejoicing. We entrust ourselves to God by rejoicing in who he is and that we get to share in his sufferings because we are being shown in that moment, in those fiery ordeals, that we're his, that we belong to him. And then he says that we rejoice now because we also wanna rejoice when his glory is revealed. Hey, if you read throughout the Bible, early Christians, book of Acts, right? They encounter suffering. We see people in prison and what are they doing? They're singing songs. Why are they singing songs? Because they know that one day Christ will appear and that his glory is going to be revealed. And if they can rejoice in being proven as Christians now, when Jesus comes, man, they're gonna be able to rejoice even more when he does away with all of their pain. He is, Jesus is going to reveal his glory to the world. He is going to show forth who he is. And creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed too. And Peter says, if we can rejoice now, trusting in that God, we can rejoice then when Jesus comes back. And friends, those who live for self, those who live for the idol of me, won't be able to share in that rejoicing. Christians understand that suffering for Christ now, even though it's hard, even though it's a fiery ordeal, will allow us to rejoice then. If we wanna suffer well, we need to do good and we need to rejoice. And now listen, when I say that, one of the things that I'm afraid of is I'm conveying like kind of a fake joyfulness, right? Like I don't, I've, I've been to churches where like I've shown up and it's like, everyone is so happy. It's annoying, right? <laughs> like everyone kind of puts on a facade, right? They, they, they put on their best image of themselves and they head into church like everything is okay. And I don't think what Peter's talking about is a fake joy. I think what Peter is talking about is like a 
deep rejoicing in who God is in the midst of trial and suffering and loss. Have you ever seen someone going through something really, really hard worship Jesus? They kind of do it through tears, but they're kind of rejoicing in who God is. They're not fake about their suffering. They're experiencing a fiery trial, yet they're still pressing in to who God is. I think that's the kind of rejoicing Peter has in mind where we kind of rest in the God who has everything under his sovereign control. A deep faith, hope, and trust. So friends, when suffering comes, rejoice in it. Peter goes on. We suffer well by rejoicing. And then he says, to glorify God in ridicule. It's not fun being made fun of, is it? We've probably all experienced that. Maybe it was on the playground when you were a little kid. And then parents, we teach our kids ridiculous jingles, sticks and stones, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, which is completely false. In fact, I would argue that words probably hurt more than sticks and stones. Words actually hurt for a lot longer. Some of us are still haunted by things that have been said. I've met some people who people have criticized their singing in church and they haven't been able to sing in church for years, right? Because they can't stop being self-conscious about what their voice sounds like, right? Words hurt. But Peter says not to be surprised when suffering comes. And he kind of says that ridicule is gonna come. And some of the words that were spoken to us that hurt the most, are people who are closest to us. It might shame us for being Christians, ridicule us. Like, what do you mean your life is changing? What do you mean your values are different? What do you mean your priorities have shifted? They don't get it. Maybe they've criticized you. What? You go to church? That's crazy. Words hurt. And I recognize that in a room, all of us have probably been damaged to one degree or another by words said. If you do any reading about parts of other parts of the, the world, rather, um, there are Christians who are hurt after they become Christians. They become followers of Jesus and their families ostracize them. Their whole communities neglect them. I think in Somalia, if you become a Christian, your life expectancy is now 34 days, right? And it's usually at the hands of your family. Most of us, praise God, don't experience that kind of suffering. But we're ridiculed. And Peter says in verse 15, he says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Peter says that when, when people start ridiculing you for your faith, when people start like, talking smack about you, questioning you, who you are in Jesus, and just like maybe criticizing you when broader society, like you might start feeling like timid about your faith because broader society is, is just kind of like moving against the current of Christianity or maybe it's in your workplace, you're not gonna get advanced at all because of what you believe. Jesus is saying through Peter, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's why you're blessed. This verse echoes a verse in Isaiah that says, 
Uh, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And what, what Isaiah was talking about and who Peter would have understood that branch to be was Jesus. And what Peter is saying here is that that same spirit that rested on Jesus now rests on you. In the middle of your suffering, you have a God who joins you in it. This is good news. We saw in Peter in previous chapters that he gives us the community of faith to kind of unfold us, to wrap us in, to give us a home, and to give us a place. And he also comes to us in his very presence. You are not alone when you suffer. So whenever you feel like by being faithful to Jesus, you can't seem to get ahead in life. God joins you in your suffering. Whenever you're mocked or teased at school, God is holding you in that moment. Whenever you're questioned by your families and friends who don't understand you or your coworkers, God understands. He gets you and he sees you in your suffering. God's spirit rests on you and your willingness to suffer and remain faithful to him is proof that he does. But then he goes on to say what we shouldn't suffer for. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Peter sets up kind of two different kinds of suffering. There's suffering because of the sinful things that we have done. You're a murderer or a thief. You steal something and you suffer for it. You probably deserve it, right? If you're a murderer, you end up in prison and you're suffering there. Kind of had that coming, right? You might not like people shopping in your store after you've been a thief. I don't know. But Peter's setting up two different kinds of suffering. There's suffering from the things we do, the sinful things we do, and there's suffering because we bear the name as a Christian. And we mustn't confuse the two. Sometimes we live with our own consequence. That doesn't change that God's with us in our suffering, but we must distinguish between these two things. And you're probably thinking, well, this is great, Don, because I'm not a murderer or a thief. So fantastic. But then Peter goes on here. He said, we shouldn't suffer for doing evil and then for being a meddler. It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Murder, you're gonna suffer for it. Don't, don't be surprised. Okay, I get that. Thief, get it. Meddler, what? Wait a minute. In what, what Peter is saying, some translations call this being a busybody. Um, so, some, some people think this is, means like kind of being annoying, um, don't suffer, don't suffer ridicule from other people because you're annoying. Um, he's saying don't, don't suffer because you constantly stick your nose in other people's business. Don't suffer because you're a jerk. Scholars think, one scholar in particular who I really like, thinks this is referring to Christians who are so zealous for the faith to sh and they show themselves as morally superior to the world around them, right? Ever met people who are judgy? 
Ever met people who think they have it together and they look down and they criticize and they get involved in other people's business? Like, you shouldn't do this. You should do it the way I do it, right? Don't suffer because you're a pain, is what Peter is saying. Don't be annoying. Don't constantly take the moral high ground and just look down on other people. And I think this is some really good advice for us living in the world right now with a culture that's becoming increasingly antagonistic to what we believe. This isn't saying we shouldn't have values or convictions and things like that, but this we shouldn't just look down on people because we understand who we are. We shouldn't be judgy. And if we're criticized because we are constantly looking down or constantly um, sticking our nose in other people's business, we might deserve it. Peter says that if we're gonna suffer, let it suffer because we're a Christian. And then to glorify God in the middle of that suffering. Suffer because you're aligned with Jesus. John Owen, who was a Puritan, said this. He said, those whom God approves must expect that the world will disapprove of them. We must expect a little bit of suffering, but we should know that it's how God shows his approval of us. You can read throughout church history and stories of Christians who suffered for Jesus, who weren't meddlers or they weren't murderers but they really suffered for their faith. I was reading a commentary this week and I came across the story of Polycarp. Of, he was the bishop of Smyrna in the early church. Um, fun fact, Polycarp was discipled by John, like the apostle. And that's like, who are you discipled by? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Polycarp was a pretty serious dude and he served the church faithfully. And in letters from the church in Smyrna, we learn about Polycarp's martyrdom. He was an old, old man. He he lived for a long time, for the time, as you can see. And he was brought into an arena before a proconsul, and he was told that he needed to offer incense to Caesar, which is a way of kind of paying tribute to Caesar as a god. And they they told him, take the oath, and I shall release you. Curse Christ. But Polycarp, in old age, said this. 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? He was then tied to the stake, and he was martyred. And he prayed that he would be received by the Lord. Polycarp had a faith that glorified God in the midst of suffering. He had a faith that that in the midst of deep, deep pain still rejoiced in who God was. He was in the midst of, of, of death itself knew that God was with him. We're called to rejoice. We're called to glorify God in our midst of being slandered, maligned, and persecuted. And Peter, over and over and over again, with each layer of hot wax, is painting for Christians a picture of people living as exiles in the world, but trusting a God who rules over it. He won't let us think that our suffering will get the last word.
Then finally, our last point for this morning, Peter urges us to trust God and do good. Kind of the last layer, layer of, of wax he paints in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what would be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And here is what that means and boils down to. As I've said before, God uses suffering to prove who belongs to him. He uses trials and the ordeals that we face to sift the weeds from the wheat, to show forth who belongs to him and who doesn't. You know, over the years, we've seen scandals come to the broader church in America and the world. We've seen pastors fall. We've seen in, in the United States and, and around the world, we've seen abuses. We've seen all sorts of awful things. And these are a way in God's mysterious plan that God judges the church. He shows forth who really belongs to him and who doesn't. He shows forth who really bears the name of Christ and who doesn't. And in all of these cases, friends, God is on the side of the sufferer and the hurting and the abused and the broken. God uses suffering not only to show forth who belongs to him, but he uses suffering to judge and purge wickedness out of his church. He shows who don't really belong to him. So then Peter closes. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Are we supposed to suffer well? We suffer well by trusting God and doing good. And I wanna slow down just for a minute and say what this means as we close. First, God is not mad at you. Some of us grew up in church traditions where each time we have faced suffering or opposition, we just learned to assume that God was ticked with us, that God was upset. And if we've learned anything from Peter over the past three chapters, really, we're learning that suffering is actually proof that God is with us and he is for us. Sure, we suffer from, from the stupid things that we do. We're idiots, as we said earlier. We're, and sure, we suffer for bad decisions, but but not all suffering means that God is upset with us. So when we encounter hard times, we don't run from God, we run to him, knowing that his spirit rests on us. We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. And it's so interesting that Peter uses that word, and I'm not even completely sure why. I have these ideas that we have a God who created the world and he created it good and he, he knew what he was doing and he is, he is over all things. And so we give ourselves to him. And we have a creator that will hold us secure in the midst of suffering. We know too that God sees us. We live in a broken world and I recognize that in a room like this, all of us have probably been hurt. Abuse, neglect, stupid things people said to us. 
And I just, I want you to hear in your suffering that God is on your side, that he is with you in your pain. And third, God invites us in the middle of all of that to trust him and to do good. Throughout the book of Peter, over and over and over again, we have been told to do good. Here's a list of all of the places where Peter references doing good. You think Peter cares about how we live in this world? I think he does. How we relate to one another, how we relate to the world around us, how we relate to the emperor, how we relate to our spouses, how we relate to each other. Peter cares about how we do good in this world. And he says that, He doesn't offer us here some like quick fix. He just says, hey, you need to entrust yourselves to a God and do what is good. We are exiles. We belong to a different king in a different kingdom. And this means that how we live in light of our suffering, how we live all of our lives changes. Jackie Hill Perry, who's a author, former rapper, really fascinating story, says this. It is the identity that we ascribe to God out of doubt or faith in his scriptures that will determine the identity we give ourselves and ultimately the life that we inevitably live. If he is the creator, then we are created. If he is master, then we are servants. If he is love, then we are loved. If he is omnipotent, then we are not as powerful as we think. If he is omniscient, then there is nowhere to hide. If he cannot lie, then his promises are all true. It is faith in the truths of God's character that has the power to completely revolutionize how our lives are lived out. And what Peter is inviting us into over the past you know, two chapters is faith in his character. Peter isn't coming to us in this kind of saying, yeah, I know suffering's hard. Trust God and do good. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Put on your big boy pants. You can do it. This isn't that Peter. This is Pastor Peter saying to tired, weary Christians, hey, suffering is real and it's hard. And I know you're going through it, but there is a God who in his mystery and in his providence is working all of this out. And I'm just inviting you to trust in, to step into the fact that you are loved, to be the community of faith I have called you to in it and to trust that one day he will do away with all of it. That is the invitation. And to trust that in the middle of it, he is right there with you.